Sometimes it's just best to keep an intro simple. And my guest today is Ross Jackson, editor over at Canal Street Chronicles and host of the Locked on Saints podcast. And he does so many other things and is another one of those people who is just a fixture on my radio program. And every Wednesday, Ross and I got together um, for a segment that we started to call the Dome Patrol. Two ball-headed guys talking about the Saints. It fits. Um, so I'm going to keep it simple. Ross and I had a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn something from it about your team. And we talked about a couple other issues affecting the NFL as well. It's a great, great interview, a great conversation. So stay tuned to Hard in the Paint coming up with Ross Jackson. Welcome back to Hard to Paint, and this is now time for the Dome Patrol. This is something that we got started over on the Hard to Paint radio show, so I have to welcome in my man, Ross Jackson. I'm so glad we get to keep this going. Yeah, man. Me too. Me too. You know, glad to be able to keep this alive with you, man. We did it for a couple of weeks. You know, got to, yeah, got to continue to collaborate a little bit over at Locked on Saints. Glad to be back over here, man. Love that you're doing this every day. Uh, fantastic. Missed you over that little bit of time. And so I'm very, very grateful to be able to listen to you every day again. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that we get to, like you said, continue to collaborate. Um, it's always been fun. And I think, I think the fans have appreciated it because the feedback that we always get is that yeah. they, they got something out of it. It's not just us shouting out opinions. They, they, they learned something. Um, right, to, right. You know, these conversations. Because we try to go in depth and take it a little bit deeper. Um, yeah. One of the things that you went really deep on this week, and this Oof. new article uh, on Emmanuel Sanders, which kind of was started in a conversation that we had. You were already working on it, but we had brought some extra points to it, and you went back and, and kind of reviewed some other things for him He's gone under the radar under most signings. Saints fans yes. are really excited. But around the NFL, people are not talking about his signing um, as much. Talk about the value, again, that Emmanuel Sanders can bring to this offense. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Saints fans are stoked about the idea of having Emmanuel Sanders here. But across the NFL, it's not a sign that's being talked about a bunch. And, I mean – Look, who can really blame them? They've got Tom Brady signed in the same division. Cam Newton just signed in New England, of all places, and everything, which I think a lot of us saw coming, but it's still very much a big question mark in terms of how that fit's going to work out. I'm personally excited about it. Uh, but when it comes down to Emmanuel Sanders, man, absolutely flying under the radar so far as a key signing for this team, particularly in terms of just finding a complimentary piece to Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas over 1,700 yards last year, 149 catches, new NFL record in doing that. So there's a lot of targets left to go around, not to mention that uh, uh, Ted Ginn Jr. was targeted over 50 times and brought in 30 catches for just over 420 yards. So the targets are absolutely there to go around and to be able to fold in a guy like Emmanuel Sanders into this offense. I think the biggest change that you're going to see 
in terms of seeing Emmanuel Sanders come in as a number two opposite Michael Thomas, as opposed to Ted Ginn Jr., is less of an emphasis of stretching the field. You're going to see a lot more being able to work within the wheelhouse of what this offense really thrives on and is predicated on, which is those short to intermediate quick passes, stuff that's going to get the ball out of Drew Brees' hand two and a half seconds. Then he's got all these guys that now can work underneath. And that's part of what excites me the most about Emmanuel Sanders. You're taking your team from you know a player that didn't catch a single slant in 2020 in Ted Ginn Jr. to a guy that caught you know over 10 of them in uh in san francisco alone just looking at his time in san francisco last year not including the work that he did in denver in the seven games before uh, he ended up being traded and so it's 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 a really really welcome sight to see a guy like emmanuel sanders that has veteran savvy that has great route running experience that is a fantastic route runner he's really precise he knows how to work these defensive backs in the nfl you add him to a team that already has so many different versatile weapons and his versatility on top of that being somebody that can work inside and out, which they also did with Ted Ginn Jr., don't get me wrong, in 2019, but potentially finding somebody that could be more effective from all those places in the field at deeper levels or even more, just simply more levels, all three levels of the field, that's going to give the Saints a new element to their offense that we haven't seen maybe since Lance Moore. What was the most surprising thing that you found out in, in researching Emmanuel Sanders that you saw as – a great compliment for Drew Brees. Well, I, that, I love that question because specifically that, that uh, compliments Drew Brees is the fact that Emmanuel Sanders during his 53 targets with San Francisco did not catch a single fly route. No verticals, no fly routes, no deep shots down the field, nothing like that. He got a couple – he got big yards on post routes. 75 of them came against New Orleans, of course, in the Dome again when that big old play happened. Uh, but when you look at what he did, he was able to continue to produce at, I believe, a better level than Ted Ginn Jr. at more levels of the field and at a greater variety without having to rely on that, uh, that, that nine route, which – Ted Ginn Jr. had over 100 of his 421 yards in. You look at the fact that Emmanuel Sanders didn't catch a single pass, so he caught he went for absolutely no yardage on those vertical routes with the exception of maybe the post route, which still, in terms of depth and air yards, is less than that that you have to put on the ball when it comes to those vertical routes, those nine routes. And so when you look at all of that, I think that that inherently complements Drew Brees' game simply because of the fact that you're going to be able to do more with Emmanuel Sanders and get greater production out of him, even though you're not relying on him to just run in a straight line down the field and hopefully catch a pass. You also look at the fact that who the quarterbacks Emmanuel Sanders has had the mm -hmm. last seasons. An inexperienced Jimmy Garoppolo, who the 49ers right. really didn't trust. And then you had the quarterback carousel in, San, uh, I mean, in Denver after mm -hmm. Peyton Manning retired. And even Peyton's last year wasn't that effective. Right. So he's – this has to be for him a revival in his mind and just the opportunity to really get back to being a target. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think about the excitement that has to be going through Emmanuel Sanders' mind knowing that he's gone from – Brock Osweiler to Trevor Simeon to Case Keatum to Jimmy Garoppolo. And now he's back to Drew Brees after spending a bunch of time with Peyton Manning. I mean, it's a pretty incredible transition for him and a positive transition for him, just like it's a positive transition for this offense and for Drew Brees. I think that for Emmanuel Sanders, I can't think of a better team fit in terms of where he could have ended up here over the offseason. I'm sure, you know, maybe Green Bay Packers fans would like to argue that, but clearly they're not interested in adding any weapons for Aaron Rodgers. The Saints, they're looking to add weapons here in 2020 uh, in order to sort of 
accommodate Drew Brees' at what we assume to be his last ride. And I think this gives him one of the better weapons that he's had in quite some time, especially in complimentary to a guy like Michael Thomas and just the rest of this offense. You've also got Jerry Cook. You've also got Adam Troutman, who has a lot of potential coming in. You've got Alvin Kamara, Latavius Murray. You know, uh, Curtis Johnson is predicting a breakout season for Traquan Smith. I'll believe it when I see it. Don't right. get me wrong. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there's still so many weapons on this offense. And how is Deontay Harris going to be involved, even just as a field stretcher that can, you know, work as a, a guy that clears the field out for guys like Emmanuel Sanders and Michael Thomas to do their work underneath and in the intermediate? There's a lot of options in this offense for Drew Brees and Emmanuel Sanders adds multiple, multiple. And Ty Montgomery, too. Can't leave And Ty Montgomery. I keep I, – it, it's so crazy. Like, you can't ever – because I didn't even mention Taysom Hill either. Like, you, yeah. you never name everybody. <laughs> there's so many, and that's a good problem to have. Exactly that's right. That's a good problem to have. And that's, you know, especially considering that you are waiting for that third receiver to develop, to have right. those other secondary options is so important. And lastly, before we move off of this, that balance. Because when you have one receiver dominating – we saw that in Detroit with Calvin uh, Johnson. You know, I mean, like, the offense was target Calvin, and there's a ceiling to that. You can get right. to the playoffs, you can get to a certain level, but when you only have that one primary target, eventually it catches up with you. There's yes. going to be a game where they can't get 10 catches. They can't get you 150 yards, and I think that has hurt the Saints at, at certain times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the, the sort of the NBA comparison to this would be having a single superstar on your team having a single scorer on your team, a single go-to guy. In the NBA, nowadays, you don't expect to go very far with just one guy. You're looking for a tandem. You're looking for a trio, a big three, a big two, whatever it is that it might be best for your team. In the NFL, it's not much different. If you have one guy that you're targeting all the time, it's not really going to – you can only go so far, as you mentioned, especially last year in 2019 when they had a hampered run game in comparison to what they put on display in 2017 and 2018. So if you pile on the fact that they now have more weapons in the passing game and ideally a healthier and more productive run game in 2020 with a ideally improved offensive line. I know that the offensive line is still a question mark because it's young. We'll see exactly how, you know, some of these new guys or not new guys, but younger guys fit in with their potential new roles. That will also make a big difference if the, and we've talked about this before in depth as well. If the saints can remain a little bit more balanced in terms of their run to pass, it's going to help develop a a ton of options for this, for this team, especially if they start utilizing that 12 personnel they talked about, because then you set up the defense to be able to get the looks that you want based on that personnel group. And you're not just going out there with one wide receiver when you've got two wide receiver, you know, when you're sticking to a two wide receiver set, you don't have just the one option of Michael Thomas. You've now also got Emmanuel Sanders that can be effective. And then whoever your two tight ends are, and then either Latavius Murray or Alvin Kamara, it's a really, really optimal setup for what this offense likes to be able to do and what Sean Payton likes to be able to do. On the defensive side, um, you also wrote this week about how man coverage can improve the Saints' pass rush. Do you feel like they have the ability this year to do more man coverage? The linebacking core is going to be key in that. Um, The secondary additions, certainly Malcolm Jenkins helps in that. And there's more depth in the secondary than there was last year. How often do you think the Saints can get into man coverage and get some one-on-ones for the defensive line to, to, to get up the field? 
Yeah, I think that man coverage is going to be a big benefit for the Saints if they're able to pull it off here as it seems that everybody expects. And when I say everybody, I mean the defensive staff, right? Aaron Glenn has mentioned how the addition of Janoris Jenkins helps them potentially get into a little bit more of those press man situations. Dennis Allen has also brought it up. So those guys in the in the second level are really the biggest question mark. Who outside of Demario Davis is going to be able to hang with you know a tight end down the field or potentially carry a guy in the slot over the middle until he can pass them off to somebody else or, or switch up the assignments if they're playing a little bit more of a zone match. Who's going to have the, the intelligence and the, the recognition, the, uh, the, the quickness in terms of recognition to say, this person's coming inside, that guy's going outside, so the guy that's coming inside is mine. Even though we started off in zone, I'm now switching to man. Like those types of things, depending upon what your, your concept is on any given play and how you develop into man coverage, do you start in man or do you start in zone and then transition into man However, that might be. It's going to take a lot from the second level to be able to make that happen. But in terms of what they have in the secondary, the two things that you need in order to be a good man coverage team, first of all, you have to be physical. Marshall Lattimore and Janoris Jenkins, not a problem. Physical. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, not a problem. Physical, right? Then the next thing that you need is smarts. That's where a guy like Malcolm Jenkins helps you out because he can make those adjustments, make calls for his secondary and for the other players around him to make sure that they're in the most advantageous position to be able to take advantage of the whatever the look is pre-snap that they're getting from the offense. That's why Malcolm Jenkins is such a huge benefit and a huge addition to this team, not just because of what he adds in terms of as you know a, a, a potential playmaker, right? He's going to be a guy that can play down in the box, that can play a little bit of too deep safety if they want to you know, split the field between he and and uh, and Marcus Williams on some man looks, even on some zone looks. That's all great, but also just him as an effective communicator, teacher, mentor, all of that. That's going to be really beneficial for this defense as well. That's going to be huge in terms of helping to implement more of a man coverage look or even a press man look, depending upon how physical they want to get. They know Marshawn Lattimore excels there. When you're coming out of college, and let's be real, like Marshawn Lattimore is just now going into his fourth year, he's still in the midst of his transition into the NFL. That takes time. And when you come out of college, most of the time in college, you're playing man all the time. You go get that guy. Stop that guy from catching the ball. Go put your hands on that guy. Like that's what the that's what the role is. And so this is still very familiar to Marshawn Lattimore. He's still very good there. It's in his wheelhouse. He's an excellent communicator and a very intelligent player. So he can play zone. Don't get me wrong. But he excels in that man coverage look. They just weren't able to do that with guys like Ken Crawley and with Eli Apple, for instance, lining up opposite him. Now that you have somebody that not only is effective in man coverage, but can also produce turnovers in man coverage, which you don't see often from the cornerback position in Janoris Jenkins, that's going to allow this defense and Dennis Allen to be a little bit more comfortable allowing their guys to transition to a little bit to a few more of those zone looks. I'm sorry, those man looks or those press man looks. Well, the key to that is going to be winning first and second down, which is mm-hmm. reliant on the defensive line. That's still the question mark, especially on the interior. Their health and the rotation on that defensive line. Can, I mean, that's, you know, again, what is that situation? How do the Saints feel about it, about that D-line right now? Do you still think they might be looking? Jadavion Clowney's still sitting out there. Right. You know, is, is, is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, everything that I've heard is that the Saints are still potentially involved in the idea, or let me say, still interested in the idea of bringing in another pass rusher. Every team wants three pass rushers. That's the ideal situation to be in to where you have two of your starters and then another guy that can rotate in or another guy that can protect you in terms of depth. Right now, the Saints don't have three effective edge rushers. Trey Hendrickson, you know, over four, I think he had four sacks, four and a half sacks last season. That's all fine and dandy, but you lose so much. 
He, yeah, he yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about him is that you lose a little bit in the run game with him. And so if you want to win on first and second down, you have to be effective against the run game and you can't afford to lose that production. That's one of the things that makes Jadavion Clowney so, so, so tempting, I guess, and, and such a good fit is the fact that he can operate as both a pass rusher as well as he's always been effective in the run game as well. Remember, it was a run game that put him on the map for many people. I mean, it was, it was a run defense play. It put him on the map for many people out of South Carolina, right? It wasn't a pass rush. It wasn't him getting after the quarterback. It wasn't blowing up this little bitty running back in the backfield. And so, right. (laughs) And so when you look at that and you look at his production in the run game over his time in the NFL so far, that's going to be key if the Saints are able to, to get him on as an addition. And so, you know, as we get closer and closer to what we're 13 days away now from when training camp is supposed to open on the 28th, once we get closer and closer to that date, hopefully we start to see a little bit more action towards Davian Clowney, whether it be with the saints or otherwise, but we'll see exactly what ends up happening with him. But you're right. It absolutely depends upon that defensive line and particularly that front seven, but we see that defensive line year after year now, 2017, 18 and 19 now going into 20 being very effective against the run game, being very effective as pass rushers, over 30 sacks just from defensive linemen last year on the 51 that they had over the entire defense. That was a lion's share of those sacks. And a lot of those non-defensive line sacks came after week 14 when they lost both Marcus Davenport and Sheldon Rankins, which made such a big difference because then Dennis Allen was having to blitz a little bit more. And when you have to blitz, then you're forced into zone coverage because you don't have enough people to man up. And so that ends up becoming a big part of where you see the defense kind of struggle a little bit toward the end of the season, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more here in a moment. But I think with all of that, you want to see this defensive line stay healthy. And if you're able to get in early and get started in that man coverage early, what's going to happen is that it's going to open up your pass rush a little bit more because it's going to give the pass rush more time to get after the quarterback that benefits a guy like Cam Jordan, that article that you referenced earlier, talking about him getting to the quarterback on average about 4.1 seconds in terms of getting after them and getting that sack uh, secured in terms of when the first body part of the quarterback hits the ground after the snap. That's a little bit longer. That's a little bit more than uh, right around half a second, a little bit longer than half a second longer than the average sack in the NFL. So you want to be, and that's not a bad thing. It just means that he doesn't stop. He's got a motor and he ends up wearing these guys down throughout the snap. So if you're able to lock up in man coverage and you're able to perform better there, that's going to end up benefiting a guy like uh, 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 Cam Jordan, as well as Marcus Davenport and some of these interior defensive linemen as well. Uh, Also with the defense, it feels like you got two linebackers for certain. Mm-hmm. You got Demario Davis, who you are you have absolutely no concerns about. None. Right. You know, one of the two or three right now best linebackers in the league, sideline to sideline. Vaughn is is probably going to start. You would imagine that they invested in him to have him start. Everybody else from Anzalone on down is coming back from some type of injury. The guys that you expect to play, a Caden Ellis maybe to come in, mm-hmm. a Craig Robertson who has not distinguished himself but still has been on the roster a few years. Right. There are just so many concerns with who else is going to be on the field with this linebacking core. Is that another position where the Saints are looking for help? I would, I, I hope so, man. <laughs> I hope so. I just, I, it, it's tough because you, you also have a guy like the, the timing of some of these injuries is really important as well. Kiko Alonso had an earlier injury earlier on in the season, came back and then had an ACL tear during the Vikings game in the wildcard game. Now, according to you know, our good friend, Nick Underhill over at New Orleans football, he expects, and he's heard that Kiko Alonso is expected to be back 
once training camp begins. Same thing for Sheldon Rankins. Both those guys apparently on timeline to return by then. But you get a little bit concerned when you talk about an ACL tear, which tends to be something that, you know, unlike an Achilles tear, which sometimes you, you hear about the Achilles being a, a, a type of surgery that makes it a little bit stronger when it's repaired. We ain't talking about that when it comes to ACL. We're still progressing in the ACL surgery. And what used to be a career-ending, career-threatening surgery or career-threatening injury, no longer. But is it something that you're going to bounce back from by the time you get to August, you know, by the time you, you are, are breaching into August after having that injury in December or in January? You know, like that's, that's a little bit tougher. So you worry a little bit about Kiko Alonso. Uh, Caden Ellis has had more than a year in terms of his return and everything. They're taking it slow with him. He's doing his rehab and stuff, but it's because it's his, well, one of his first injuries of that magnitude. So they're really taking their time with him. Alex Anzalone's already been cleared. And, you know, another guy, Chase Hansen, who was an undrafted free agent coming in last year, he never even got on the field. Mm-hmm. You know, he was on that non-football injury reserve list that ended up taking him out for the entire 2019 now maybe they just really liked him and they wanted to stash him away which we've seen teams do before but even still he didn't get any reps at all because of that preseason training camp or otherwise and so now you wonder okay where is he going to fit in as a guy that's a potential sort of hybrid you know safety linebacker you know he started off as a safety transitional linebacker his last year in utah before he got before he came out so it's a little bit tougher so when you look at that really you're only like you mentioned the only solid guys you have there that are healthy are Demario Davis and Zach Vaughn and Craig Robertson, who, you know, is somebody that you look at mostly as a special teams captain and a special teams presence at this point in his career. And so it, it's a little bit tougher. So you look to see maybe if they're going to add any potential uh, there, but there's not any, you know, there's not a ton of huge names out there that are going to pop off the screen if they sign them, but certainly continuing to look at depth there. They added Anthony Ciccolo, who was formerly of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but he's a bit more of an edge rusher. He played in a three, four system in Pittsburgh. Same thing when he was in college at Miami. So you expect him to really get into the full that defensive end outside of that they haven't really overly addressed this linebacker position for the most part outside of the draft so you look to see if maybe they look to make a later ad which we've seen them do or even look last year they made the trade for Kiko Alonso just ahead of week one could they look to maybe fill out a similar model in terms of finding another way to add a guy uh, at that second level on the defense yeah and Alonso's injury history is starting to get a bit longer and his age yeah I mean there are certain things that are working against some of these guys um, you know, in their recovery. We hope that they all get back to strength. But the strength of this defense has to be up the middle. Yep. That's where it has to be this season. And that linebacking core is going to be vital to that. Um, yep. One of the other questions that was raised on your site that I really liked was the effects if the season is shortened. Yes. My thought on that is depends on what part gets cut. Right. Because if they start and they get 10 games in and you miss the last six, great. If yeah, they're pretty Gucci at that point. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got to be thinking eight and two, nine and one is possible right. in those first ten. Uh, the last six, but if, if it's pushed back and we only play the last ten, it becomes a bit more difficult of a process. It's a little bit tougher at that point. Yeah, you know, we always think about the Saints having the greatest struggles week one. Uh, over the course of the last few seasons, with the exception of last year, even though that was a close call uh, with Houston. But when you look at you know, the way that the schedule really turns a couple weeks after the bye week, particularly as you begin that road trip, week 12, going to Denver, going to Atlanta, going to Philly, which the Philly game may be a little bit easier now because Philadelphia, the mayor announced that there's no large gatherings. And Philadelphia, the Eagles thought that they were an exception to that, but not in terms of the fans. They're an exception because 
you know, there's more than 50 people on, on a team, right. nevertheless, having two teams in there, but they didn't get exactly what they expected, which was that, oh yeah, well, we'll still be able to have fans, which is not going to be the case, at least at this time, it's expected that that's not going to be the case. And so with that, that might make the end of that road trip a little bit more tolerable, but then you come off that road trip only to go home and host the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. So really, you know, like you get a little bit, maybe you get, you, you know, you take a little bit there, but also you could potentially be coming home to host the, those Kansas City Chiefs without fans in your own stadium as well. So if it's, you know, so it goes both ways. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered. So you're absolutely right. If you end up shortening the season in that you don't finish out the last few games, fantastic, because this team really ends up looking really good by the time you get out of that bye week and a couple weeks into it. But once you get into that road trip, or if you still hold on to that road trip or whatever it might be in terms of what the adjustments, the schedule is, uh, are, excuse me, uh, then I think that that, makes the biggest difference for them the other thing to look at is that you could always there they've talked since the beginning once the schedule came out about the potential of moving the week one game toward the end of the season so that's one thing that could happen the other thing would be that every week two opponent has the same bye week so the saints and raiders have the same bye week so they could potentially end up coming moving that game to what week six and it ended up playing there. And then you have to figure out, you know, where there's another bye week that gets plugged in or however it happens, or if they just play 16 games straight, which I think would be a little crazy, but it could be any number of different occasions as well that could also take place aside from just, we only get to one part or we only start at one point. Some of these games might end up getting moved around. And then all of a sudden does that Tampa Bay Bucks team look a little bit different week you know, 17, which would be 18, right? Which would be the, the off before playoffs and things like that. Right. Does that team look tougher at that point than they do at week one where they're adjusting to a new signal caller, they're adjusting to a new offense, a new play style, everything that's going on week one. Are they in rhythm at the end of the season? And does that make that game tougher? Same thing for the Las Vegas Raiders. Does, you know, does Las Vegas end up having fans in the stands at the end of the season if it gets moved or if it gets pushed back to week six versus week two? There's a lot of different, sort of scenarios that could take place here in terms of how the schedule moves around and how even the more intimate or nuanced details would make a difference for the Saints, whether they're traveling or staying home. Yeah, they have Minnesota, Kansas City, and then Tampa, right. you know, all coming at the end of the season. That, you don't want that. Right. Going into the postseason. <laughs> That's just not how you want to end the regular season and say, we're going to be healthy, we're going to be ready to go. <laughs> no, right. you don't want that. The other thing that I was thinking about, is that we could have a situation similar to 1983 when the mm-hmm. NFL had the strike and split had basically two split seasons. Yep. And you had a first half champions and you had second half champions and then you did a reseeding for the playoffs. I think that's a real possibility too because the season could get interrupted right in the middle due to the, the flu season or whatever and right. then have to get pushed back to January maybe to conclude the regular season with a Super Bowl in late February or so. So I think mm-hmm. that's a possibility too, which would mitigate for me, again, the Saints problem. Because if you do get that break right. and you only get, let's say they play a grand total of five games beforehand and another five after and you've missed six and they kind of reschedule so that you get your division games in. Because I think that would be the NFL's primary concern is that mm-hmm. all six division games get played by every team and then go from there. So at least you have division champs. So if six of your 10 end up being division games, then you still have to like pretty much where the Saints' chances are. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It lightens up a lot. And then you get the break before maybe some of those tougher opponents. You get the break before more familiar opponents, things like that as well. So there's a lot of different ways that that ends up benefiting. And it's a model that the NFL has done before, which I think in the midst of everything that we're looking at in terms of this pandemic and adjustments, financial talks, economic talks, testing talks, protocols, all the stuff that we're discussing right now and that the NFL and NFLPA are having you know, endless phone calls about, we're in the midst of watching them try to work through a process that they've never experienced before and try to work through something and figure out ways and create new innovations about how to approach the issue. That would be the one time during all of this they'd be able to say, hey, we have a model for this which I think could be beneficial at a time where there are so many questions and not enough answers. How much of a concern is it on the NFL side that they and the players association still don't have a complete agreement on players who opt out on insurance on all those things. And like you said, we're quickly approaching 13 days before camps are supposed to open. This stuff seems like it should be done already. Yeah, they've had a lot of time to work through here. I'll say it this way. I'm not surprised that there's not a full agreement reached. I just expected that the progress would be a bit more at this point. Now, of course, what we know versus what they're discussing and how far along they are, there might be a delineation there. There may be a delineation in terms of what they've maybe verbally agreed to or what they've moved on from because they feel like they're in a good place versus what we're hearing about that they're presently working on. But the things that we're hearing about that they're presently working on are huge. Just yeah. in, even just in terms of the economics, like talking about the, the, the camp stipend, right? If you report to camp and you're a rookie or you haven't accrued a 2019 season being allotted a $250,000 stipend because I showed up and you canceled camp, so I deserve something. If you've accrued that 2019 season, potentially up to $500,000 or at least $500,000 going to those players. If you get into, you know, you get through training camp and then the season starts, you make an active roster but then the season never actually happens and the season gets canceled before week one, what kind of, what kind of uh, a stipend or what kind of guaranteed money do you have at that point? I think those are important, extremely important questions. One of the most important questions that we've heard too, actually two of them, is first of all, if you report to camp and you get the coronavirus or you, you test positive for COVID-19, is that treated as a non-football injury or is that treated as a football injury? Because those designations are very different. It's very different to go away with a, an injury that you suffered in gameplay versus a non-football injury that you might have suffered away from the game. Because at that point, you can be completely on your own at that point without any team support if it's classified as a non-football injury or at least with far less team support. So there's a lot of different things in terms of guaranteed salary. What's guaranteed for injury on the football field isn't necessarily guaranteed for injuries off the football field, things like that. So there's a lot of delineation between those two things. And the simple fact, not to get too real, but the simple fact that there's no answer to the question, what if one of us dies? No, (laughs) that's a a real question. Right. It is a real question. And I've seen a lot of people dismiss it. Like, why would you even ask that question? Like, I ask that question every day. (laughs) And if I don't have an answer to that question, I don't do that thing that I'm answering, that I'm asking the question about. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. There should be an ability to answer that question, even if it's just about what the process maybe is being worked on, or even so much as just openly having that conversation. But that conversation is being skirted around and literally being told to the players, well, that's on Roger. Which, I'm sorry, but if my life and how you handle it is for the people Roger around me is in his hands, no, nah, I'm good. I'm often out real fast. And so, I mean, just simply, you, you should not be forced 
without any type of compensation or with any type of clarity to do anything that doesn't have an answer to the very simple question, what if one of us suffers something fatal by reporting to camp or reporting to whatever the conversation is? That's just not something that you shouldn't have an answer to. And the fact of the matter is football players are at a greater risk. Football mm-hmm. is considered the most dangerous of all the team sports to play under this pandemic. It inversely affects African-Americans, we know. Right. We also know that it impacts people with high body mass indexes yep. even more. If you are above 31, you increase your risk exponentially. Mm-hmm. And NFL linemen, <laughs> yep. NFL linemen on average are over 300 pounds these are guys whose body mass index hasn't seen 31 in a while. Right. You know, I had Marlon favorite, favorite on, and Marlon said when he was at LSU, he was a 33, you know, 34 regularly. Right. For the NFL, he got down to about 30, but still. And he's a, he's a shorter D lineman. You know, a guy right. 5'10", 5'11", as a D right. lineman. We're talking about guys who are 6'7", six, 6'8", six, yeah. I just don't know – how you can go into this and not have a real protection system. And I don't know how DeMora Smith, who again, when was the last time you saw or heard from DeMora Smith on right. these issues? And right. I, I just, I have a big problem with that where you see the baseball union is out in front of all these things. The NBA yep. players association is out on all these things. The NFLPA has been relatively silent from the beginning of this. Yep. Yeah, we're hearing more from the players via their tweets than we're hearing from the actual union that represents them. And I think it just goes to show you what the relationship between each of these different leagues and the players' unions are and where you know some of these unions, the type of power that they have within their negotiating because clearly the NFLPA isn't ready to come out and have any type of conversation, not necessarily have any type of conversation, but doesn't feel like they're, they clearly don't feel like they're progressing enough to come out and update anything. You know what I mean? In terms of the constant communication we're getting from some of these other unions and some of these other leagues, it's clearly a delineation here. And it seems like they should be the most aggressive because they have the most to lose. Right. Because their contracts are not guaranteed. You've right. already had the owners threaten escrow on their payments. And you like you said, that. they're going to find every way possible. No game, no game check. Baseball already tried that. You yep. don't play, you don't get a game check, even if you're on the roster. This right. is, so – you think the NFL won't try these things to, to save their money that they're talking about they're going to lose? I mean, to me, the players' union should really be saying, you know, again, we don't even know for training camp. Are they going to be right. sequestered in one hotel together? Are the Saints going to have to stay all together and be bussed over to the Metairie facility every day? Right. Are the, or are all these guys going to be allowed to stay at home? How do you control any of this right now? And there's yeah. no plan and no indication, and I'm just – that's the most frightening thing to me. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. Too many questions, not enough answers. It's what you're hearing from every NFL player that's out there that's talking about it. It's what you're hearing from the guys that are updating us that are within the media and everything. Like it's, 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 you know, what we're the most that we've gotten in terms of transportation is a don't take ride shares to camp and don't use an Uber to get to, uh, to get to the stadium when it's time to play the games. Y'all got to come on a bus. Like, that's, that's the most communication we've heard in terms of transportation. So there's still a lot of questions at, to, left to be asked. And the thing that's so disappointing about it is that, you know, you mentioned the conversation was going on with the MLB. That conversation happened a month and a half, two months ago now. And the NFL is just now embarking on the details of it. And maybe because they do have more to lose. And so all of these other things in terms of, like, 
uh, instilling a, a solid cap for next year, a flat cap for next year of 198.2 million, which is the same as this year, and then spreading out the loss. Otherwise, when the revenue is going up between 2022 to 2030, that's a great solution. It's a great, uh, it's a great you know, option. But do we know how realistic it is? Like, we shouldn't be having this conversation now. That's why I mentioned, I'm not surprised that there's not a full agreement on the board at this point, but you would hope that they would be to the positions where they're simply ironing out details as opposed to still sort of making, working around these sort of grand gestures and larger strokes. I'm going to ask you this one. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the lift every voice is the same. <laughs> What was your reaction? Uh, I was going to do this. I was flipping through on my phone when it popped up because you know I live on Twitter. Uh, when it popped up, and it was one of the you know there have been a couple times throughout this pandemic to where I've said you know what I need to get away from screens a little bit. I need to rest my eyes a little bit. I got blue light filtered glasses and everything just to keep myself you know healthy as best as possible. But that was the first time that I was ever forced by something else to be like I don't need screens today. <laughs> I don't need anything else. I don't need it. <laughs> Look, am I a fan of Lift Every Voice and Sing? The Negro National Anthem, which they keep trying to reclassify as the Black National Anthem, by the way. But am I a fan of it? Absolutely. Have I heard it several times? Absolutely. Have I sang it? Absolutely. Like, have I, have I been a part of, you know, other things that have presented this work? A hundred percent. But do I trust the NFL to be the sort of like giving institution toward the idea of, doing this and, and what the parallel is absolutely not absolutely not i think what you're doing and this is something that we saw old nick cannon fall victim to yesterday is that what you're doing is that you're taking something that has been used as a vehicle to speak against you and reclassifying it as a means of ammunition against that other party and when you do that all of that does is welcome sort of the repeat offense but from the opposite direction so instead of jumping into this idea to where you're doing this big grand sort of, I call it, 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 it's kind of mouthpiecing in a way, you know what I mean? It's a little, it's a lot of lip service and in terms of say, Oh, look what we did, you know what I mean? Without actually doing anything. And then I love the specification of doing it during just week one, just week one, we're going to give y'all this. And then we ain't never going to talk about it again for the rest of the season. <laughs> like it's, it, it's wild to me, man. I, I wasn't a fan of it. No, I am completely not a fan of it. I think it's performance art. That's what I call it. Yes, yes. It's the NFL pretending to do something. And for people who don't know the lyrics, and when you see right. the lyrics, when they are put on these screens at these things, you and I get them. Mm -hmm. They are very, the words are very deep. It's not a song really of, it's a song of struggle. I mean, that's yeah. what strong it, song is. It is a song of struggle. It is not necessary. It's like we're hoping we get to that place. Right. The people who want to hear that message have already heard it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The people who are sitting at home who have no desire to hear it, they're going to hit the mute button or they're going right. to get up and go get chips or, or you know, go to bed, whatever they do until kickoff comes. Right. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be ignored or it's going to be cursed at. Right. And that's what's going to happen. And people are going to say, why did we do this? The Monday after, that will be the, all the stuff. Why did we do this? The players right. are going to ask why, I think. You know, the, I think that yeah. the people who are against it are going to ask why. We're all going to be saying, what did this accomplish? Because to right. me, it doesn't create empathy. It doesn't push an agenda forward. And we still haven't seen that from the NFL. You say right. you're creating these dollars, but again, what are you going to use your power for? 
What are you going to use the, not the platform of the league, but the power of the league to get change? Because the Redskins don't change their name without political and financial pressure. Right. That doesn't happen. So whatever the NFL is going to use its muscle for, they have to use their political and financial power. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. My favorite thing about the, the Washington press conference was, first of all, the number of times that they used the word in the midst of saying, we ain't going to use this word anymore. That was, I think they said it like six or seven times in the press release. And then every single time in their press release that they acknowledge the exterior forces and the people that they're making this decision for, it was sponsors first, every single time. Not fans. They never apologize. Never. None no of that. apology. Right. For the name. Right. It's all show, like the, it's the optics, right? And we're not interested in the optics, we're interested in the effect, and we're interested in how you can help enforce change. Now, you said that you were gonna go out and you were, you know, back to the NFL in general, said you were gonna go out and you were gonna involve players in conversations about how to work against, mar- you know, how to work in favor of marginalized communities and work against marginalization of, uh, of black people and, and the, the, the systemic racism and the systemic oppression that, that affects them uh, disproportionately. Where's that? Where's that part? Because I've seen uh, we are gonna we we're gonna we're gonna play you, the the national anthem in front of everybody for one week, and we've seen some conversation about potentially utilizing you know uh, uh, sidelines or some of those tarped off areas. We're talking about tarping some of that up and then using that to you know That's put messages of, of positivity, unity, and, and Black Lives Matter and things like that. I'm, I'm less against that than I am just completely blown away by the audacity of we're going to play the national, we're going to play the, the black national anthem. Everything's going to be fine. Right. Like looking I, at I, the banners too. That's the thing. Looking at the yeah. banners. How many shots yeah. of the banners in an empty stadium are you really going to be looking at? Right. Right. Like you have to give up like big time financial ad space in order for that to actually really be seen outside of, you know, the one sort of one shot of it at the top of the game where the announcers, you know, where the commentator says, look at what we did. And then never addresses it again later on, you, you know, throughout think, the I game. Mean, do you think that NFL commentators are equipped to See, have that, that discussion? <laughs> right. Do you no. think, I mean, when James Brown is sitting there and he's looking down the stretch and it's, Boomer Esiason, and, and I mean, I'm not trying to you know, cast the no, no, on no. anybody, but when your panel is Boomer Esiason and Bill Cower and those, can they have this discussion right. and do it properly? Because you look at all the, you go to Fox and it'll be Kurt Menefee and it'll mm-hmm. be, you know, um, Michael uh, Strahan and, and Howie Long, hey, his, he, certainly he did something right with his son. Right. You know what I mean? And Jimmy yeah. Johnson has always been, Somebody who's 100%. been on the support of the side of players. But they work for Fox. Right. You know what I'm saying? So what are right. the limits that Fox is going to put on what they can and cannot say? Because I, I just think that the discussion is going to be really weird every Sunday. Because you have guys like Ryan Clark who's been really outspoken on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Randy Moss is certainly somebody who's going to speak his mind. Mm-hmm. But it, NFL is a very conservative organization but how it wants to be presented. And they have done this with, you know, with their partners before and said, yo, let's, let's tamper the criticism. Right. You know, so, yeah, that's what I'm worried about, too, is just the NFL network is going to have so much control now mm-hmm. because there's going to be so much more limited access by people like you and me. Right. During a season that's, you know, what they're only talking about, 10 reporters total. 
right. um, for training camp. for camps and everything. And, yep. and, and it, that's going to be controlled very strictly because, you mm-hmm. know, NFL personnel, your major television outlets, athletic sports illustrated, like there's not going to be room for right. us. Right. We might get a zoom call on a Monday or something <laughs> like that. But seriously, but that's it. But so that's now it. the narrative yeah. is even more controlled and you're not going to have the access to players in the same way to ask them. Right. Now what's going on? What tell me the real, because where, where are you going to get the chance to, to meet up with them in that same way to yeah. try, to connect with them in those moments in the locker room after practice when they're, when they're unguarded in, mo- yeah. in a much different way. Yeah. And at what point does that control seep outside of being within an NFL facility for these players, right? The NFL is going to love not having, you know, for, for these players and for media to not have access to the narrative, you know, to all of these other narratives that are out of their control. At what point does a J.R. Smith happen to the rest, you know, to players in the NFL, it's where they're in the midst of having an honest conversation or giving their thoughts on social media about what's going on, and they get a text message from the NFL, shut it down. Yep. You know what I mean? At what point does that control go outside of that? Because there's so much, there's so much now that can be far less transparent, that can be far more opaque, that can be far more, you know, closed off from the, the public eye in terms of the conversations that are happening, the way that things are going, the way that players are feeling, that you have to imagine that the NFL is going to like a good portion of it. And that some NFL clubs, particularly the clubs, maybe not necessarily the New Orleans Saints, who's a little bit more about the idea of giving ownership and individualism to their Sean players. Payton. At least I don't Sean know Payton. if I'll right. say the whole organization, but I'll yeah, be yeah, yeah. on Peyton. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but, you know, you look at Tom Coughlin, right? And the Jacksonville Jaguars, like, they, th- these rules that we're talking about that are new for training camp have been their rules for some time. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the Giants training camp as well and everything like that. These rules are going to work to a lot of maybe, let me say, more traditional flavor and everything, which goes away from where the league has been trending over time in terms of the accessibility and the involvement of players within their community, particularly via social media. And so at what point does the NFL work to try to control that? Because otherwise, the narrative is completely controlled by who they allow in the building. And I think that that's something important for fans and consumers of this information to understand Mm -hmm. is that they have to keep the pressure on for access and not allow the NFL and its partners to completely dominate the narrative. They have to continue to ask those questions themselves. Why aren't we getting more of our reporters in? Why aren't we getting these folks in? Because now independent media, guys like mm-hmm. you and me and, and people all across the country, we are the voices because corporate media is either scaling back in right. huge numbers. We're watching our colleagues get fired left and right yep. and having to go the independent route. And that's, Honestly, where you're going to have to find and differentiate more often now where the truth really is and where the analysis really is, because you and I have no gain in a lie. Right. Right. There's no financial benefit in us making up a story or being pro one thing and pro or anti something else. There's no money there for us in doing that. So, you know, that search for honesty is on the fans in some regard, but it also means that we work harder, too. That's true. That's true. Which if there's anything that we're, we're accustomed to, it's working harder. I've said over and over again, my West Indies ancestors, very proud, (laughs) very proud. All this work that we're putting in out here. (laughs) We got a couple of questions um, on Twitter. First one is from Barry Hershus who works over at New Orleans magazine. Um, How many wins do the saints not get that originally they were projected to have 
in an empty Superdome. So just to remind folks, the home schedule is Atlanta, Tampa, Carolina, Green Bay, the Chargers, Niners, Chiefs, and Vikings. So in an empty situation, they have no fans this season, which games become more possible L's than W's? I think that because of also where they fall in the season, obviously the Kansas City game is part of that conversation, which may, for some people may not be a new L. That might be an L that people expected, you know what I mean? Um, the Minnesota game that comes after that, especially with it being on a Friday, which is easier than it being on a Thursday, right? You get an extra day, but just sort of with it being the way that it is, either way, it's a short week. You always get concerned about short weeks. So I think that that's definitely one um, that ends up being that. And then you have the opening game week one, which I think is another one that is affected by this opening week, already str- a struggle for the Saints over the last six years with the exception of last year, which was still very close, like we talked about uh, before. I think that that's a big one. Uh, and then I also look at, and this one's this one a lot of people might think me strange for, but that week seven game against the Carolina Panthers. I know that the Carolina Panthers aren't a very strong team going into 2020. I understand that. But this is also a team that took them down to the wire early on last season with Will Greer and Kyle Allen at quarterback. So now you give them Teddy Bridgewater, who has a little bit more understanding and experience working against the Saints defense, even though, as we discussed, maybe a little bit different in terms of how they approach. But still, you're coming off of a bye week, which Sean Payton is usually very strong in, but also lost 26-9 to last year against the division rival Falcons. That week seven game I always thought was going to be sort of like peak petty Sean Payton anyway, just because of the whole Tommy Stevens, Joe Brady dynamic and then the Joe Brady, Sean Payton dynamic in terms of look, Joe Brady took Sean Payton's offense, went made a name for himself and then became an offensive coordinator in the same division. So at what point does not having fans in the stands affect the opposite way mm-hmm. in a game like that too? So that's four of them that I immediately look at. I think you have to consider the Green Bay game, but I think there's so much, so much dysfunction coming for Green Bay that I'm not too entirely worried that early in the season there. And, and just, if enough games at that point to get the Saints in a rhythm of playing without fans, if that's the case, but not going up against, say, a familiar opponent that's within your division and those divisional games that are always kind of wacky. So the four biggest ones for me are those two late games, Kansas City, Minnesota, the first game with Tampa Bay, and then that week seven game against Carolina. Yeah, I think the games that you're most impacted are either new offenses or by quarterbacks who love to have that opportunity, you know, like I said, the crowd to to frustrate Tom Brady in week one would be very important. New week, mm-hmm. you know, new offense, new audibles. You use that sound right. to kind of mess up their ability to communicate and change calls at the line. That's really important against a vet. And against a guy like yep. Matt Ryan, too, who, you know, under pressure can at times make bad decisions. So that that extra half step that you get because of your crowd noise Yep. It's going to be important in those kinds of games. Like I said, I don't think it is big against as big against Kansas City because we knew that game would be really tough no matter what. But mm-hmm. for a guy like Kirk Cousins in right. Minnesota, who has already said, I'm cool with playing in front of nobody, yeah, because mm-hmm. nobody's going to boo you. Right. So for Kirk Cousins, <laughs> for it to be quiet, man, he's got to be like, yeah, that'll be fantastic. That's I'll great. Fans in New Orleans. It's the most anyway. love. It's the most love he'll experience on the road all through. Right. Maybe even at maybe even at home. Honestly, maybe even so yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's going to come down to quarterbacks more than anything else to me. Is how do they respond? Um, so I think, but the Saints could actually benefit from that on the road though too. Yep, and I will say this. I will say this. Benches are going to be huge. Teams that actually like each other. 
that's going to be such a big part of being able to gather and maintain and maintain any type of in-game momentum that you're getting energy from an exterior source. So you look at, and that's much easier. You know, I want to shout out Jake Madison over at Locked on Pelicans. who talked about this with the Pelicans. Pelicans are a team that actually likes each other. And I think that's going to be huge in the bubble to where the bench, which is already you know, a source of energy anyway in that, in, that, in that league and in that style of play, that's going to be huge for them is to have that type of reaction for the bench. If the Saints bench can also find a way to support that offense when it's on the field, support the defense when it's on the field, find ways to sort of help, at least just with the momentum driving, you're not going to have enough people on the sideline that's going to cause any issue in terms of communication. I think that you probably catch a flag for that anyway. But in terms of just lighting up when it's time to light up and everything, like we've seen Michael Thomas do, like we've seen Alvin Kamara do over time, all of that is going to be really important to maintaining any type of momentum and giving something over to your offense uh, as well. I think that that's going to be something in terms of those teams that actually get along and have a culture to where they can support each other. That's going to be part of what separates some of these teams early on in the year. All right. Last question we have is from Georgia boy. A um, what can help improve the defense's ability to get off the field late in the fourth quarter? Should that be a focal point in training camp? Just to give you a couple numbers for reference, mm-hmm. the Saints were 14th in the NFL last season in fourth quarter points, 6.4 per game. On the road, it was 5.8. That was down from 9.3 in 2018. And they allowed 6.6 points in the fourth, 7.2 on the road. That was up from 4.9 in 2018. Yeah, so this is a big part of where they struggled. We saw them give up some early, you know, some late leads and everything as well and get into game situations where it should have been as close as it was, where that offense had to fight back. And I think we, we started to reference a little bit of it earlier just in terms of the physical nature of this defense, if they can shift over to that man coverage, press man coverage, get in the grill of some of those, uh, of some of those wide receivers and get after the quarterback. All of that creates a longer-lasting effect going into the fourth quarter. Thankfully, you have guys like cam jordan who have a motor that run long enough for them to be effective in the fourth quarter but if i remember correctly only three of his sacks came in the fourth quarter out of the 15 and a half that he had last season so i think developing a more effective pass rush later on in the game i think is going to be a huge part because you want to keep that you want to keep that quarterback off balance early and uncomfortable late as well so being able to do that i think is going to definitely help to sort of affect this offense and or affect this defense and affect opposing offenses and i think that being able to shift to a different type of coverage to where your situational play calling becomes a little bit simpler when you're trying to develop situations where you're saying don't let that guy catch the ball and a man coverage i'm completely like fundamentalizing the idea of man coverage but when it is a little bit more fundamental in terms of how you call those situational play calls because you can trust your guys to be on islands and you can trust your safeties to take care of their responsibilities, that that will be more helpful toward the end, end of games than instead trying to do the situational, situational play calling to where you're either varying your defense to where you're trying to give different looks or you're trying to rely on zone coverage because you can't develop a pass rush without sending people from the second level, which is what started to happen toward the end of the season. I think that that kind of stuff is going to be big in terms of maintaining uh, leads late into the fourth quarter and not giving up so much in the fourth quarter. You're always going to see the bit of a bend don't break approach mm-hmm. in the fourth, but with less holes in zone, you know, with pass rush, not getting there until four seconds in three and a half seconds in with the zones, not continuing to widen and widen and widen and given 
and giving these wide receivers spaces within the defense to find all of that is going to, if they can shift to man, all that kind of gets eliminated or at least gets alleviated in such a way that they should be able to maintain a little bit better on defense, particularly with Dennis Allen's situational play calling. And a big part of that too, is going to be Sean Payton's play calling in the fourth quarter. Yes. Can you Run get first the ball with the running game. If they can't yep. get first downs with the running game in the fourth quarter, this that puts the defense in bad positions. So this Definitely. year we've got to see again the best to me the Saints' best game plan is always Drew Brees under thirty five passing attempts, mm-hmm. Saints over twenty rushing attempts. Yep. They do those two things, nine times out of ten they go win the ball game. Yep. And I think being able to lean on a guy like Latavius Murray, whatever it was that kept them from doing it after he showed you what he showed you over the two games that he really broke out last season or at least showed you something in terms of the Chicago game and the Jaguars game where he went over 100 yards in both of those and they didn't ride on him you know, late in games going into the rest of the season. I think if you can correct that and if you can utilize Latavius Murray, particularly late in games where you have a lead to where you need to get, the dude falls forward and gains two yards. Like it's, you know, he's six foot three the guy and so you have a good opportunity with him and you have an offensive line that resets the line of scrimmage a yard two yards downfield on on uh run plays built to run so utilize that to run yep Yep. so as long as they can utilize that i think that's the easiest thing when we talk about the line and i'm gonna let you go after this but when we talk about that line the easiest thing to teach is run protection is run blocking because it's about going forward and linemen love to go forward Mm -hmm. and i think it just it, it gives the Saints such an advantage to have a guy like a Ramchek, and you know Ruiz been taught the running game. Oh man, you know what I mean? so yes, it, it's it, yes that is a the Saints line is built to run, and I think that that's you know Andrews Pete makes fewer mistakes mm-hmm. the, when he's run uh, in run protection right. than he does in pass blocking. So I mean, I with Drew Brees and and the, and just the the his fragility at this age of every quarterback mm-hmm. over forty. I'd right. love to see the Saints really just try to get 25. If the, if the number was 25 rushing attempts per oh. game, give it to me. Be still my heart. <laughs> Ross, tell everybody before I let you go how they can follow you, all your great work, everything that you do. And um, I look forward to next Wednesday when we do this again. Yes, man. Absolutely. Looking forward to doing it again. Uh, y'all can follow me on Twitter at Raj Jackson, N-O-L-A. You can check out all of the written work over at CanalStreetChronicles.com. You can check out the podcast over at Locked on Saints. And I got more. I got more upcoming that I'm very excited to share once it's, we're in a position to where I can share it. So uh, just keep an eye out because there's some good things happening as well. Much like all the great things that are happening for you, my brother. Congratulations on everything. I'm very grateful that you're uh, back on the airwaves here. Thank you again. And we'll continue to support each other, man. I just I think you're one of the best out there. And, um, and folks should just really pay attention because you do great work. My brother, I appreciate you. All right, so that'll wrap up today's episode of Hard to Paint. We'll be back again tomorrow. So y'all check us out, Apple, um, Spotify, wherever, and go visit my website, HITP with DG. Check out the shop. There's cool stuff in the shop. All right, <laughs> until next time, I'm David Grubb. This is Hard to Paint. Hard to paint.